Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Five were killed and 13 injured in a shooting at a Brooklyn subway station. Explosive devices were found. Investigation is now underway. Ukraine trying to verify unconfirmed reports that Russia may have used chemical weapons. Russian leader Vladimir Putin makes a prediction about the outcome of the war. Russia is still holding a former U.S. Marine. The U.S. ambassador to Russia says he is being punished for a crime he didn't commit, and the case is flimsy. The Biden administration takes steps to combat rising fuel costs. It will allow gasoline with more ethanol in it to be sold throughout the summer months. A subway station in Brooklyn was the scene of a shooting this morning. Law enforcement says five were killed and several unexploded devices were found. NTD's Jason Perry is in Brooklyn now. I'm here right outside of the 36th Street subway station in Brooklyn. And this morning, the fire department received a call about smoke being in that subway station. And it was later reported that multiple people were shot. Um, there were multiple photos on the Internet of people bleeding and laying down. As of now, it appears that the suspect was wearing an orange construction vest, so many people thought that he may not be suspicious, but it was later seen that he was actually the gunman. We're now waiting on a press conference, and at this point, it, believe, it, it seemed that this person is not apprehended yet, as there are multiple helicopters in the sky just in one place, and it appears they're looking around the area. Multiple streets are cut off this area and multiple subway lines are also cut off on this area as it appears the investigation is still ongoing. And right now we're just waiting to hear from the New York City Fire Department officials and the police department at this press conference. And we'll give you the live feed to that press conference. Thank you. The New York Fire Department says it received a call around half past eight reporting smoke in the 36th Street subway station near Sunset Park in Brooklyn. Eyewitness video shows smoke rolling from the subway car where the shooting took place and passengers covering their mouths and noses. Rescuers rushed to the scene to help fallen passengers on the floor of the station. The fire department says 13 people were injured. All five victims were believed to have been in the same car. Initial information indicates that a suspect was wearing a gas mask. The NYPD is advising people to avoid the vicinity of 36th Street and 4th Avenue According to the city's transportation department, train service has been suspended in parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan. New York Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted that she's been briefed on the shooting and will work with the Metropolitan Transportation Authority and other agencies. Police are canvassing 4th Avenue to question witnesses. This is one of a string of shootings and high-profile incidents in New York City in recent months, including a subway incident in January when a woman was pushed to her death in front of a train. Now watch as NYPD executives and city and state officials provide an update on the shooting incident. FDNY, state police, everyone involved in this has one purpose, and that is to stop the insanity of these crimes. You'll hear now from our fire department. I want to thank them for being there to help us defuse a volatile situation but we'll be giving continued reports as this day unfolds. Again, we ask everyone to be careful, be cautious, report what you see. It is likely that someone out there listening to this is gonna help us lead us to that individual. You have a description of what they're wearing. You know the details, but this is the day. We pull together as New Yorkers, 
united in a common purpose to say no more. And that is what I'm going to continue to do as the governor of the state of New York, working with our local partners right here. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Good afternoon. This morning, the FDNY received reports of gunshot victims in the subway. Thanks to their quick response, we were able to treat 16 patients. Ten of those patients are suffering from gunshot wounds at this time, and five of them are in critical but stable condition in our local hospitals. Yes, we have 16 total patients. Ten of them are suffering from gunshot wounds, and five of them are in critical but stable condition at this time. And I'm going to pass it over to the MTA for an update on our subways. Okay. First of all, we have to thank the NYPD and the FDNY and the whole team who've done so much to protect us and help immediately to recover from this situation. And I also need to acknowledge the MTA workers who had, were, were, had the, the, thought, the foresight to immediately move a train that was on the platform, the R train, out of the station so it could carry people to safety. That was, that was smart thinking. Right now, uh, B service is suspended, W service is suspended, the D and the N and the R are running with suspensions and some shuttle buses. Um, and folks should check the website for latest. Obviously, it's a disrupted uh, day, um, but a lot of the system is, in fact, running. Um, I just want to say one thing on a personal note, which is on 9-11, I stood on 4th Avenue and watched people, New Yorkers, come back from that tragedy. And I thought, I watched New Yorkers help each other and storekeepers walk out and give people water. That was the same thing we saw on the platform today. We saw New Yorkers in a difficult situation, an emergency, helping each other. That's the subway riders. That's who New Yorkers are. Every day they're showing people in the subway, which is our public space, that New Yorkers of all varieties can come together in small spaces and get along and create something bigger. That's what we remember in these emergencies, as well as the tragedy and the thought for the, for the quick recovery of the victims, is New Yorkers are incredibly resilient just after, as they are in every emergency, and we thank them for what they've done, and we thank the governor and the mayor for their leadership in all of our recovery from COVID and from every one of these challenges. So just to reiterate, we're going to be very limited in what we are able to answer in questions. Uh, just to also underline our partners here, we got Mike Reagan. Uh, Mike Regan is the Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI and NYPD. John DeVito from ATF, who's helping us with tracing efforts and investigation. Uh, he's the Special Agent in Charge for New York City. We have the Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez, who is also here. And uh, of course, Chief Ken Corey, Chief of Department and First Deputy Commissioner Ed Caban. Uh, we'll start off with questions for the police Was the shooting on the train? Was the shooting on the train or on the Russian leader Vladimir Putin says he has no doubt Russia will achieve its goals in Ukraine and argued they had no other choice than to take military action. This as Ukraine tries to verify unconfirmed reports that Russia may have used chemical weapons. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Russian President Vladimir Putin said Tuesday that Moscow will no doubt achieve its goals in Ukraine 
to ensure Russia's security and protect people in areas of eastern Ukraine controlled by Russian-backed separatists. Ukraine began to turn into an anti-Russian foothold to our regret. They began to grow sprouts of nationalism and neo-Nazism that have been there for a long time. Ukraine and its Western allies have dismissed such claims as a cover for aggression, and the West has imposed unprecedented sanctions on Russia. But Putin warned that attempts to isolate Moscow would fail. We don't intend to be isolated. It is impossible to severely isolate anyone in the modern world, especially such a vast country as Russia. Putin said Russia will continue to work with partners who want to cooperate. Meanwhile, Ukraine is checking unverified information that Russia may have used chemical weapons in Mariupol. Ukraine's ultra-nationalist Azov regiment posted on Telegram Monday accusing Russia of using a poisonous substance, saying the victims have respiratory failure and vestibulo-atactic syndrome. Mariupol city council said civilians had minimal contact with the substance, but Ukrainian soldiers were closer to it and are now being observed for possible symptoms. The council said they couldn't examine the area yet because of enemy fire. Russia-backed separatist forces in Mariupol denied using chemical weapons, according to Russian news agency Interfax. Britain's armed forces minister said they're working urgently to understand whether chemical weapons have been used. And, and if they have, as the foreign secretary has said, the people responsible will be held to account. The use of chemical weapons is abhorrent. It does cross a line and all options are on the table for how we would respond. The United States and Australia also say they're trying to verify the reports. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Hundreds of small explosive devices were found scattered over a residential area in the eastern part of Kharkiv on Monday. Residents said they heard whooshing sounds and later found hundreds of small explosive devices in green plastic casings scattered in their yards and on nearby roads. Demining engineers were deployed in the area to search for and detonate the explosives remotely. The head of the demining unit of Kharkiv State Emergency Service identified the devices as PTM-1 landmines, which are small, timer-operated devices carrying up to three pounds of liquid explosive. The PTM-1 landmines were banned as anti-personnel mines by the 1997 Ottawa Treaty to reduce civilian casualties. The case of a former U.S. Marine being held in Russia is remanded to a lower court for review. Trevor Reed has been detained since 2019 and was sentenced to nine years in prison. U.S. Ambassador John Sullivan was at the proceedings. He says he is very disappointed that justice has again been denied. Unfortunately, the justice that Trevor deserves has been denied. Trevor remains in prison for a crime he didn't commit. The evidence at his trial was so flimsy that spectators uh, and even court personnel laughed at the uh, proceedings. According to Sullivan, Reed is being punished for a crime he didn't commit. There are also concerns about Reed's health. His family says he is coughing up blood several times a day and has lung issues. Sullivan also says the Russian invasion of Ukraine should have absolutely nothing to do with the other cases of U.S. citizens being jailed in Russia. A ballerina in San Diego, Kirsten Bloom Allen, is sending military supplies to her colleague in Ukraine. She does this by using a network of friends in various countries to ship the items. She shares her story with us. 
I reached out to fellow ballet dancer Alexei Potyomkin in Ukraine to see if I could help him and if he needed help in any way. I wanted to, to do whatever I could. And um, he needed supplies. They're running out of supplies there. So I said, I will help help you and I will find a way to get them to you in Ukraine. It was a little challenging, but we managed it and I was able to ship him helmets, bulletproof helmets and gas masks and night visions and uh, a goodie bag of different foods and medical supplies. I mean, he's really having a hard time over there. It's, it's rough. It's rough. So there. what motivated you to provide these supplies to your colleague? Well, I think artists will always help other artists. I think that is kind of in our in our souls as artists. And I wanted to reach out to to someone in my industry to help them out as much as I could. And what is Alexi doing right now? Alexi is a paramedic right now in Ukraine. Wow. And so he's a ballet dancer gone paramedic. He is a ballet dancer turned paramedic. Yes. Wow. Well, that's very brave of him. So these supplies are going to help him by just being better prepared. Exactly. So when I first spoke with him, he didn't have a helmet. And I, I thought, how could, how could he be in the middle of a war and not have a helmet? I, it just, it's kind of unfathomable to me. So I, I purchased ballistic helmets and I shipped them uh, to him and I was able to get them into Ukraine, which was actually quite difficult. I had to ship them via a channel to try to get uh, directly to Ukraine, but we figured out a channel to get the supplies. To have you found support from various people along the way? Have, the, have they been willing to help you? Everyone I've spoken to about this has wanted to help. Everyone here. Everyone here in the U.S. I've received many donations and outpouring of support. I believe that the majority of the United States population, the people here in the U.S. are looking for ways to help and wanting to help as much as they can. What are they donating? Oh, gosh, people have donated uh, money. They've donated uh, clothing to me, uh, supplies, uh, bulletproof vests, um, helmets, uh, tactical gear, food, medical supplies, tourniquets. There's an outpouring of support. It's pretty tremendous. I, I, I'm completely amazed by how many people. It, it's, it's pretty incredible. Allen is trying to have the Ministry of Culture of Ukraine release the medic for two weeks. That's so the two of them can dance together as part of a gala and fundraiser in San Diego to support the cause. It's unclear if that will happen. As millions of people flee Ukraine, a nonprofit that is based in Chicago and led by volunteers has organized evacuations for over 15,000 people. It's been helping them escape the war-torn country since February 25th of this year. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. Ukraine Trust Chain funds teams on the ground. They're helping evacuate women, children, the elderly, and persons with disabilities from the front lines of the Russian invasion. South Ukraine, from Chernigov area, from Kharkov area, all these names that you are starting to get familiar with on the news, those are all the directions and places that the teams we work with go to evacuate people or to feed people that cannot be evacuated. Cherkaski was born and raised in Kyiv, Ukraine, but moved to Chicago, Illinois over 20 years ago. 
Since late February, he's been juggling his volunteer efforts with his full-time job as an analytics director, but Cherkasky gives all the credit to the volunteer teams he's working with in Ukraine. The team that evacuates, at, they haven't evacuated less than, I believe, 1,500 or I want to say 2,000, but let's say 1,500 people a week. Their top spend is $10,000 for that evacuation team per week. Ukraine Trust Chain also collects and distributes food and other basic needs, sending them out to approximately 35,000 to 50,000 Ukrainians each week. The nonprofit has also sent over $300,000 to date and continues to raise and send roughly $80,000 each week. I've been totally overwhelmed by the amount of support and people's willingness to help and offer their networks and, and just give. And I hope that that will continue. All donations go directly to support volunteer efforts. A donation of as little as $3 can evacuate a person from the war zone. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. About 10,000 undocumented Ukrainian refugees have reportedly been processed by border officials over the last two months. And now a nonprofit called UkraineNow.org is in Tijuana, Mexico, helping Ukrainian refugees. The group's founder, Archer Kulian, tells us more about their mission and what they expect to see in the time to come. We started from evacuating people from Ukraine from the day one of the, the war. Um, and we've been running evacuations, helping people with refugee resettlement, uh, shipping supplies back to Ukraine. And I live in Los Angeles. I am from Ukraine. I have family in Ukraine. But then, um, you know, we learned that there was something going on here in Mexico locally. And I just came down to Tijuana. And what I saw was just, you know, very, very bad situation that was improving slowly. And I was like, well, we, we have to help here. So what we are doing right now is actually helping local volunteers that came down from U.S., from California mostly, uh, helping with the organization, the process, and just setting things up as infrastructure. So why have so many Ukrainians come to the southern border? Do they expect that they'll be able to get into the U.S. easily? Correct. That's the message that is being spread online. Uh, unfortunately, it's being portrayed as the easiest way into U.S., and it, it is not. I want to be clear. It's very, very hard still, and not that many people uh, get through. And that's why there is such a huge backlog. And how do you source the supplies that you give to these refugees? It's just civilians, you know, just people, regular people like me and you coming down and helping out. Uh, we are fortunate to be the 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization, and people donate to us, and we're able to use that money to buy supplies and help people. Can you give us an idea of the scale of your operation? So when I first came here in the first days of April, it was 1,000 refugees in here. Right now we're talking about 3,000 or even 4,000 by now. And how many supplies are you moving? We are just, we stopped counting. It's just so, so much water, so much food. Now we're establishing laundry services uh, because, you know, it's, it's basically people are staying here for three, four, five days, weeks. So what are the next steps for you? Right now we're preparing, preparing for the next wave. We're estimating 10,000 Ukrainians here and it's going to be brutal. It's going to be so bad because the infrastructure is not there. And today we had a meeting with uh, organizations, with, uh, with uh, UNCHR, with U.S. State Department, with Mexican local government to establish that infrastructure and if everyone wants to help. 
Americans will still be forking out more money for many products as inflation hits a high not seen since the Reagan administration. The Consumer Price Index increased 8.5% for the year that ended last month, according to the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That outpaces the elevated reading of 7.9% reported in February, and it's a peak not reached since December of 1981. Despite that, there is a bit of good news for consumers. According to AAA, the nationwide average for a gallon of regular gasoline Tuesday morning was just under $4.10. That's an eight-cent dip from last week and a 23-cent decrease from last month. The Biden administration is allowing the sale of higher ethanol gasoline blends this summer. It's an effort to address increasing fuel costs, due in part to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Monday night, a senior official in the administration said, The president is committed to doing everything he can to address the price increase Americans are facing at the pump. Specifically, the president is planning to allow E15 gasoline to be sold. It's a fuel that uses a blend of 15% ethanol. Ethanol is made from corn, and it's currently cheaper than regular gasoline. So adding more ethanol to gas could reduce prices at the pump. The official went on to say, This is the latest step in expanding Americans' access to affordable fuel supply and bringing relief to Americans suffering from Putin's price hike at the pump. The Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, will allow E15. The agency is expected to issue a waiver around June 1st. According to the official, E15 would not be allowed this summer without the waiver. That's because it would produce too much smog during warmer weather. Now the EPA is looking into ways to make E15 available year-round. The official said using E15 provides additional options for Americans at a time in which we obviously have a real challenge when it comes to oil and petroleum market. According to Fox Business, E15 is offered at about 2,300 gas stations in the nation. Broadly speaking, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices worldwide. Fuel prices reached a peak in March after Russia invaded its neighbor. Many countries, including the U.S., banned Russian oil as punishment. Though Biden has faced criticism for high gas prices, they rose before the invasion. Both Democrats and Republicans have criticized him, and many are saying the U.S. needs to allow more oil and gas drilling domestically. That's to reduce dependence on foreign countries. What's more, a senior administration official said the Agriculture Department is allocating millions of dollars to programs to support sustainable energy sourcing. That includes $700 million to help biofuels producers, about $5.5 million for renewable fuel infrastructure, and $100 million for biofuels infrastructure. A Democratic politician from New York State was indicted on numerous charges. Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin is accused of bribery, wire fraud, conspiracy, and other related offenses. According to an unsealed indictment, Benjamin allegedly attempted to get campaign contributions as a trade for securing a state grant. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York has not commented yet, but is holding a press conference this afternoon. Prior to the indictment, a spokesperson for Benjamin's campaign said once they found out the contributions in question were sourced improperly, they were donated to the campaign finance board. The top election official in Georgia says more than 1,600 non-citizens attempted to register to vote in previous elections, according to an audit of the voter rolls. Secretary of State Brad Reffensberger made the announcement at a press conference. We are referring these attempted non-citizen registrants 
for further investigation. We will be sending these cases to the State Election Board, the GBI, local district attorneys around the state to find out how these individuals ended up filling out voter registration applications despite not being citizens. Raffensperger's office says a Georgia law requiring proof of citizenship prevented all the non-citizens from registering to vote. Those flagged have been placed on a pending status and must provide proof of citizenship before they can cast a ballot. The law is currently being challenged by Fair Fight Action, a voting advocacy group founded by current Democratic Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. The group claims in their complaint that the law disproportionately disenfranchises recently naturalized U.S. citizens. An Iowa judge rules a Democrat candidate hoping to challenge U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley cannot appear on the Democratic primary ballot in the Senate race. The judge said former Congresswoman Abby Finkenhauer's name shall not be on the ballot because she failed to meet signature requirements. Iowa law mandates that anyone who wants to run for the U.S. Senate must collect at least 3,500 signatures with at least 100 eligible electors being from at least 19 counties in the district. Republicans argued that Finkenauer collected the signatures but failed to meet the second requirement. Petitioners to the court said some of the signatures clearly did not have dates or had incorrect dates. Finkenhauer said Monday that her campaign remains confident that the signature-gathering requirements were met. She called the court's decision deeply partisan and said she will challenge the decision. The chairman of the Republican Party of Iowa said Finkenhauer's failure to qualify for the ballot is a complete and utter embarrassment. Finkenhauer represented Iowa in the U.S. House of Representatives for two years, but lost in 2020. Law enforcement agencies worldwide are taking action against those who commit cybercrimes. They've taken control of a popular website that's used by hackers to advertise stolen data from U.S. consumers and corporations. The FBI, U.S. Secret Service, and the Justice Department issued a statement on raid forums that reads, This domain has been seized. Officials from other countries, including the United Kingdom and Sweden, were also involved with the website's takeover. Here's a look at guns and other gear seized by federal authorities from two men who the Justice Department says were impersonating Homeland Security agents. Arian Teherzadeh and Haider Ali were arrested last week after allegedly ingratiating themselves with federal agents for two years, giving them expensive gifts, including rent-free apartments. During a detention hearing and in court documents, Defense attorneys for the two argued that the Justice Department is overblowing their actions, saying the friendship with law enforcement was genuine and not part of a ruse. Attorneys for Ali say he genuinely believed he was acting on behalf of the Department of Homeland Security. Relatives of five of the eight people fatally shot by a former employee last year at an Indianapolis FedEx warehouse are suing the shipping giant and a security company. The plaintiffs accuse them of negligence and of failing to ensure that the workplace was safe for its workers. The federal lawsuit filed Monday alleges that 19-year-old gunman Brandon Scott Hull had exhibited emotional and mental instability on multiple instances before the shooting. The suit contends the defendants knew or should have known of Hull's potentially violent and dangerous propensities which were reasonably likely to result in injuries to himself and others. The suit names as defendants FedEx Corporation, 
three of its operating units and Securitas Security Services USA. It seeks a jury trial and unspecified damages. Up next, California lawmakers are pushing a bill to create a four-day work week that would require employers to pay overtime to those working five days. A New Jersey Kmart is bidding farewell to its customers. This is one of only four remaining Kmart stores in the United States. All that and more here on NTD News. As people return to the office after two years of working from home, some California lawmakers are pushing to shorten the work week. Their goal is four days instead of five. NTD's Cynthia Kai shares the plans. State Assembly members Christina Garcia and Evan Lowe introduced Assembly Bill 2932 in February. The bill would shorten the work week from 40 to 32 hours for companies with over 500 employees. It would require employers to pay overtime to those who work more than four days per week. The bill specifies that regardless of a reduced work week, employers must not reduce employees' pay rate. According to California's Employment Development Department, or EDD, if the bill passes, around 2,500 employers would be affected. Based on data from EDD's 2021 second quarter, that number amounts to about 0.1% of all California businesses. In response to the bill, Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley wrote on Twitter, at least that's better than the zero-day work week the state has encouraged for two years. The California Chamber of Commerce says the bill is a job killer. It says increases in labor costs would discourage job growth especially while so many employers are still facing both pandemic recovery and higher supply prices. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. The U.S. Postal Service is stopping service to a California neighborhood after a tax on mail carriers. The agency told Santa Monica residents they would not be receiving mail deliveries until further notice. In its letter, it said multiple mail carriers have been assaulted or threatened by someone who has not been located or apprehended. The Postal Service wrote, The safety of our employees and of the mail they deliver to you is our highest concern. Until we can ensure the safety of both, delivery services will remain suspended. Residents are instead encouraged to pick up their mail at the post office on 7th Street. Private carriers are still delivering packages to the neighborhood. According to CBS, Only one assault has been reported, and the victim did not press charges. But a Postal Service spokesperson says there have been three separate incidents with three different carriers in the neighborhood over the last few months. Former retail institution Kmart looks like it's about to disappear in the United States. After this week, there will only be three stores remaining. The Kmart in Avenel, New Jersey is one of only four Kmart stores left in the United States, and it's closing its doors permanently this week. It's just sad. This used to be a real part of America, Americana, and it's gone away. I find it sad, the people that are losing their jobs, I find it sad. Author Michael Lisicki has written several books about traditional department stores. He pays regular visits to the remaining Kmarts. 
these just dotted the American landscape over the years. They still dot the American landscape, but as carcasses, as closed carcasses. At one time, Kmart had more than 300,000 employees and boasted over 2,000 stores. But the company struggled to compete with Walmart's low prices and Target's trendier offerings. The retail chain filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in early 2002, becoming the largest U.S. retailer to take such a step. Actually, that's what it was when I was younger. I used to, I mean, I don't have any money, so that was a good place to, to shop because the prices were cheap, you know, stuff like this. And, and to see this, uh, you know, gone right now, it's, it's kind of sad. According to Mark Cohen, director of retail studies at Columbia Business School, the three remaining Kmarts may close in a few months. Kmart is a victim of serial incompetence with regard to its historical leadership. It's had a variety of folks running the business who uh, were either not paying much attention to competition or attempting to do things which uh, frankly resulted in uh, the ultimate train wreck, which is bankruptcy. Transformco, the company that currently owns Kmart, didn't say how long it expects to stay in business at its three remaining stores in Westwood, New Jersey, Long Island, New York, and Miami, Florida. Next up, the first storm of the year to hit the Philippines kills dozens of people. It whipped along the eastern and southern coasts and also triggered a deadly landslide. Dozens of people are rescued from a cable car collision in India. They were trapped in midair for two days and two people died. Stay tuned to find out more. Philippine authorities say at least 25 people are dead after a tropical storm hit the eastern and southern coasts of the Southeast Asian country. Rescue workers in the Philippines were trudging through flood water on Tuesday, trying to reach survivors of Tropical Storm Maggie. Authorities said the day before, at least 25 people had been killed in landslides and floods. The storm hit the eastern and southern coasts on Sunday, bringing sustained winds of up to 40 miles an hour. One of the worst hit areas was the eastern province of Leyte, where the bodies of 22 people were recovered after being buried under a landslide. Elsewhere, in the town and an island to the west, the streets were underwater on Tuesday. Residents were seen carrying their home appliances through flood water up to their knees. Meggie is the first storm to hit the Philippines in 2022, which sees around 20 storms a year. The U.S. Navy says an aircraft carrier is operating in the waters off the Korean Peninsula. There are already tensions over North Korea's missile launches. Observers say the regime could soon resume testing nuclear weapons. A spokesperson said the Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group is conducting bilateral operations with the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force in the Sea of Japan. This is the first time since 2017 that a carrier group has deployed to the waters between South Korea and Japan. It comes as U.S. officials are increasingly concerned that North Korea could carry out an underground nuclear test in the coming days. Last month, North Korea conducted a full test of an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017. The USS Abraham Lincoln led military exercises in the Yellow Sea, launching its F-35 stealth fighters and other jets. The U.S. military said it was a response to the increased pace and scale of North Korea's ballistic missile launches. 
An Indian military today rescued the last of almost 50 passengers who had been trapped midair for two days after a fatal cable car collision. The collision on the Pilgrim Cableway directly killed one person and another fell to his death when trying to climb on a rescue helicopter. Most of the almost 50 survivors in the dangling cars were rescued on Monday, but three were not lifted to safety until Tuesday. That's according to the police chief of the city where the incident occurred. Authorities say the cars collided when one of them became partly dislodged from its cable. Neither car fell to the ground, but both became immobilized. The cableway takes pilgrims to the top of the hill, which Hindus consider holy. Coming up, Germans have taken up the challenge of reducing natural gas consumption in their homes. That's despite the country's hesitancy to ban Russian energy imports. The invasion of Ukraine has slashed sunflower oil supplies in Spain. This is leading some supermarkets to limit sales. And with limited supply, rising prices take their toll on consumers and businesses. All that and more after this short break. In the German city of Cologne, consumers are trying to reduce their natural gas consumption at home. This, while the German government is in a tough spot between dependence on Russian energy and the war in Ukraine. Like many other German households, Sebastian Zuger and his wife are working to cut back on their gas consumption. That's despite the country's reluctance to join the EU ban on Russian gas imports. It was definitely a way to save on gas, to not use the gas stove, but the induction plate. It's a very simple appliance which we also have in our weekend home, and we've only had positive experiences with it. Plus, the coffee is ready much more quickly. The couple wonders how else they could save on the use of natural gas. We like to take a bath, which means using the gas-fired water heater, so there isn't really a possibility to save much on gas, except maybe if we don't wash ourselves anymore. But now we're thinking, the gas-fired water heater is relatively new. What's the right thing to do? Do we throw it out? Should we install a heat exchanger? Europe sources 40% of its gas from Russia, and Germany is one of the most dependent countries. Critics say that Russian energy dependence is funding the invasion of Ukraine. In another apartment in Cologne, Paolo Alimanta is preparing a meal for his daughters. He sees the current energy debate as an opportunity for renewable energy. The pressure couldn't be heavier because a majority of Germans drive cars and because rent for people living in the city's apartments rose incredibly. I believe the government is now forced to get a lot of money very quickly and non-bureaucratically to get a lot of renewable energy into the country. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says the country may be able to end its imports of Russian oil within this year. But according to economic analysts, the decision could lead to a sharp economic downturn. The Greek government will work with private investors to boost gas exploration projects. The prime minister says the country is reducing its dependence on Russian energy and aims to become an energy hub in Europe. The reduction of our dependence on Russian gas and the search for alternative solutions for transitional fossil fuels, such as natural gas, which will guarantee on the one hand sufficient energy power and on the other stable and better energy prices for all are now a one-way road. 
About 40% of Greece's annual energy supply comes from Russia. In the past, the country has produced small amounts of oil and has tried to explore its hydrocarbon potential. But the exploration stalled thanks to a shift to renewable energy, the lack of political will, and low crude oil prices in previous years. The Prime Minister says that Greece aims to have a clear idea by 2023 on whether it has gas reserves it could tap, while indications of potential gas reserves so far made the government moderately optimistic. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and fears over gas supply in Europe have created a jump in prices, forcing the European Union to seek ways to reduce its reliance on Russian gas by two-thirds this year and to end it completely by 2027. Sunflower oil supplies in Spain have been slashed by the invasion of Ukraine, leading some supermarkets to limit sales. With limited supply, prices have also surged, taking their toll on consumers and businesses. Javier Alvarez owns a small Madrid-based cafe. Its specialty? Churros. Deep-fried dough traditionally consumed in Spain at breakfast. The problem is, he says rising prices mean his business is no longer profitable. The crisis, the war in Ukraine is affecting us, but this comes from before. A year ago, we used to buy oil at 80 cents euro per liter, and now it is 2.60 euros per liter. It has increased more than 300 percent. This war was the straw that broke the camel's back. Everything has been rising, flour, oil, but now it means that the business is no longer profitable. But the crisis is also an opportunity for producers of one of the nation's best-known exports, olive oil. The industry estimates it will have enough olive oil to cover the shortage, left by slowing Ukrainian imports. We are confident that this might pose an opportunity because we will likely be able to reach new customers in the market in which we are already present, make our product known. But some restaurateurs and manufacturers don't agree that the two oils are interchangeable. At the Mallorca Patisserie factory in southern Madrid, one of the owners said he was swallowing the cost of sunflower oil to ensure the quality of output for the special Easter season. It is true that in Spain what we have most is olive oil and pomace olive oil, which is softer, and it is true that it is useful for many things, but it is not good for frying, confectioneries, and baked goods because of the taste. The global sweets industry is looking at using other vegetable oils like corn or coconut, but Spain does not yet have a stable supply. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Colombia's National Police Force rescued over 1,000 ocelots, snakes, birds, and other animals valued at more than $1 million on the black market. The nationwide operation, supported by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service and local environmental authorities, led to 21 arrests, the police said in a statement. The head of the National Police said the National Police, in coordination with wildlife authorities of the United States, have achieved the most important operation to safeguard protected species in Colombia. The 1,000 animals, including turtles, starfish, and tarantulas, are now in the care of environmental authorities. Colombia is one of the world's most biodiverse countries, and police there have rescued nearly 6,000 animals from potential trafficking so far this year. Locals in a town in central Lithuania have hung thousands of trees decorated with eggs up and down one of its avenues ahead of Easter. 
The chicken and goose eggs are decorated with paint, wool, glitter, and other materials and hung up by locals in the town. One local resident said they found at their home various beads, ribbons, and glitter. They said they glue them and decorate them. The director of Saduva Kindergarten said these are works of art into which people put a lot of work, spending time together with their children. The tradition began in 2011 and is led by a local kindergarten. The director said more than 11,000 eggs had been hung up this year, some of which had been made in previous years. Various items from space history, including the first lunar sample, will hit the auction block at Bonham's in New York City tomorrow. The highlight is a sample of lunar dust gathered by astronaut Neil Armstrong when he landed on the moon with the Apollo 11 mission in 1969. Its estimated sale price is between $800,000 and $1.2 million. Lunar samples are um, property of the U.S. government, property of the people. Uh, Because this sold through a, a government sale, had fallen into private hands. It's very unusual. I've never seen another instance where this has happened. Another item of interest is an original fragment from the rocket launcher that launched Sputnik 1 into space on October 4, 1957, marking the start of the space race. The only known fragment is in private hands. It's estimated to sell for between eighty dollars and $100,000. Also hitting the auction block, is a 1969 map of the moon signed by 15 astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, along with former President Richard Nixon and German-American aerospace engineer Werner von Braun. Its estimated sale price is $20,000 to $30,000. A metal-rich asteroid orbiting the sun between Mars and Jupiter may soon have its first visitor from Earth as NASA technicians prepare the Psyche spacecraft to explore it. Workers at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, are putting the unnamed explorer through its final testing before its scheduled launch later this year in Cape Canaveral, Florida. This is a really incredible uh, spacecraft that's gonna help us do some really fundamental exploration. We're gonna be going to an asteroid that's never been visited before. The spacecraft will spend 21 months orbiting the asteroid, also named Psyche, in 2026 to study its properties and the building block of planet formation. I've been working on this for nine years since it was just a concept on a whiteboard, and it is amazing how close we are to actually getting to ship this. Um, It feels great to be here. It also is tremendous, tremendously uh, pressure and work because we got to make that window, and we need to make sure everything works. This will be the first mission to explore an asteroid composed of metals instead of ice and rock. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.